Good morning. Pretty pale, I have to say. Let's try that one more time. Good morning. All right, that's good. I feel alive now. This is lesson 19 in our series in the uh, book of Hebrews, and we're talking about verses 6 through 13. And the subject is, what's new about the new covenant? A number of years ago, uh, it fell our way that my wife and I would be responsible for the care of a, uh, a friend. And uh, in the process of that, we uh, had to execute a, a portion of what would be uh, her will. And so all the way along, we were making certain assumptions about that. And at one stage, I had to move a little more deeply into the financial aspects of that. And so I called to verify what the, the stipulations of the will were in this regard. And uh, anyway, I was told, well, you know, you have a copy of the will, just read it. To my surprise, when she died, her will under which I had been operating uh, had been replaced and nobody had told me. In fact, they not only hadn't bothered to tell me, they chose not to tell me. And it was the strangest feeling uh, being there and realizing I had been executing, I had been living out my experience and we'd been actually taking our care on the basis of assumptions about that will. And then to find it had changed. Well, we're talking about the new covenant and, and I want to assure you that God has not pulled a switcheroo on us and that somewhere along the line he says, aha, a new will that you didn't know about. We do know about it. And the writer to the Hebrews wants to uh, make sure that we are clear about that. Now, it's probably a good thing when we talk about the new covenant, it's probably a good thing for us to take a moment and just be sure that we are clear on what a covenant is. In the Old Testament times, there were relationships that were established between the king or the ruler and the people and, uh, and that often is looked at as a kind of pattern. Uh, these suzerainty treaties are, are seen as a kind of pattern for the uh, covenants that are given in the, uh, in the Old Testament. But one has to be careful with that. The covenants that God makes are, are their own uh, breed. And while there may be similarities in terms of the style and whatever, the content obviously is different. Some covenants are what we might call bilateral covenants. For example, in Malachi, when you read about uh, the, the way in which the people had forsaken their marriages, it, it basically says that you have forsaken the covenant of your marriage. So when we enter into marriage, we enter into a covenant relationship where both the groom and the bride, the husband and the wife, assume certain responsibilities that they vow that they will fulfill, and it's a bilateral agreement. Uh, both need to abide by those uh, covenants. There, of course, are, are covenants in the, in the New and Old Testament that, have, uh, that are not necessarily unconditional covenants, such as the Mosaic Covenant. It did not come accompanied by an oath. And so God promises certain blessings or certain consequences based upon Israel's obedience or disobedience to his law. 
But we know that the writer to the Hebrews wants to talk about those covenants that are unconditional covenants. That is, they are sealed by an oath and they cannot change. And they are unilateral in the sense that it is all about God. God is going to keep his covenant because of his glory. God is going to keep his covenant through his provision. It is all about God. And those blessings are absolutely secure. Now, if we choose to turn our backs on that covenant, there are consequences that come from that, but there still is a covenant that is made that is unconditional. And that's the kind of covenant that we're talking about here. Now, I just want to say that the new covenant isn't new in the sense that we've never heard of it or thought about it before. The new covenant has been given a, a lot of press in the Old Testament. There are, there are many texts. In fact, there were so many texts that I couldn't put them on your, your PowerPoint slide because there wasn't room for them. But in the Old Testament, you have the text that is cited here in Hebrews, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. There is another text in chapter 32, verses 36 through 41 of Jeremiah. Ezekiel has some great texts on the New Covenant, and uh, uh, I'll put those in print. I'll have those in, in the notes for you so that you can see those. Also, Isaiah in chapter 59 and, in, and 61 as well has some statements about the New Covenant. So when we look from an Old Testament point of view, we've been told a New, te- uh, a new Covenant is coming. It is not a surprise in that regard. There are also many New Testament texts some that speak specifically of a new covenant, some that speak of a covenant, and we're, we're sure it's new because they're parallel texts. For example, in Luke uh, chapter 22 uh, and verse 20, our Lord says, this is the new covenant in my blood, when he's speaking about uh, the Passover and the communion, the observance of the Lord's Supper. In the parallel text, in Matthew 26, verse 28, and Mark 14, verse 24, it says this is the blood of the covenant. And we know, of course, that that means it's the blood of the new covenant that he has made with us. A number of New Testament texts, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and Galatians chapter 3 and 4. And other texts, again, that refer to the covenant that God has made. So it's not really new, and I guess I'm saying it's not really unique to Hebrews somehow, that this is a theme the writer to the Hebrews has originated that other writers have not dealt with as well. The new covenant was made with Israel and Judah. If you look at Jeremiah 31 and elsewhere, you will discover that God has made a covenant promise to the nation Israel, that is the northern kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah, Interestingly, in the context of Jeremiah 31, they're already divided. They have already been divided off, and the northern kingdom has already been carried off by the Assyrians and dispersed, and part of the southern kingdom has been carried off. And so somehow there is going to be, we know, a unification of the northern and southern kingdoms as a part of this new covenant. But the question probably for us is, If the new covenant was a covenant that God made with Old Testament Israel, how do we enter into it? What is is our part in a covenant that God has made with Israel? If you look in in Luke chapter 22 and verse 20, where our Lord Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood, then we know that Jesus has made it clear that the new covenant is being fulfilled by his work and his death on the cross of Calvary. 
And we see that in the parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark as well. When we come to the epistle to the Corinthians, the first epistle in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul speaks these words again about this being the new covenant of our Lord in his blood. And that's why he says it is such a serious offense for the celebration of this new covenant in the church to turn into a drunken orgy. And, and that's why so many have become sick and some have died, because it is a celebration of the new covenant and it's done in a way that is dishonoring to our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians, Paul talks about the glory of the new covenant and new covenant uh, ministry. But there is that application to the church, but how does that come about for us? And there are different explanations depending upon your theological stream. But it seems to me that the answer, the key text for us, is in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, Paul says that the church, the Gentiles, have been grafted in to the blessings that God has promised to Israel. Now, in the Abrahamic covenant, we know that God had promised to bless not only Abraham, but bless all the nations of the earth. So the covenant blessings that are spoken of as blessings for Israel are blessings into which Gentiles have been grafted. And in Romans chapter 11, he says that the reason why this has happened is the Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah has opened the door for the Gentile, uh, for the Gentile world to hear the gospel and receive it. So we live in the times of the Gentiles. And when you get down lower in, in Romans chapter 11, he's saying, when the times of the Gentiles has come to an end, then all Israel will be saved. And based not only upon Romans chapter 11, but based upon Jeremiah chapter 31 and its context, it seems safe to say that God is going to bring about the fulfillment of the, of the new covenant for Israel primarily at the time uh, that comes after the tribulation when God focuses again on the nation Israel. So they're going to receive the blessings as well, but as it were, we've been grafted in to enjoy those a little bit ahead of time with respect to them. So Romans chapter 11, I believe, is the, is the key text probably for understanding that. When you come to the new covenant, it, it appears to me that you have to understand the relationship between the uh, Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the new covenant. These three have a relationship with each other, but unless we understand that, I think we're, we're in trouble. When you look at Luke chapter 1, verses 72 and 73, this is uh, the prayer of, of, uh, of thanksgiving that is given on beha- uh, because of the, the announcement of the birth of the coming of Messiah. And the interesting thing about that, maybe we better just look. Luke chapter 1, verse 72 and 73. Zacharias is giving thanks for the salvation which is going to come. And he says, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Which one? Well, not the Mosaic, because he says to grant us that, uh, that which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we may be de- delivered from the hand of our enemies. So he understands the coming of Christ as a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, not a fulfillment in the sense of 
realizing uh, the, the, uh, what the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was to do. In Acts chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, we read these words. And it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers. We're still not sure which one that is until we read on. Saying to Abraham in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, Jews, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So there is a reference, I believe, to the fulfillment of the new covenant as it relates to the Abrahamic covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled through the new covenant. Well, then what is the role of the Mosaic covenant? When you look in the Old Testament, you will discover that there was not a great deal of optimism, biblically speaking, for what the Old Covenant could do. When you look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, and he talks about what's going to happen. Israel is going to, is going to sin, and they're going to be sent out of the land, and so on. There is a salvation that's going to come, but it seems fairly clear that that salvation comes as a result of the faithfulness of God and His work, and his glory, not men's carrying out the stipulations of the Old Testament law of, of doing uh, the, the law of Moses. Uh, when you look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, there's another clue. Fourteen verses describe the blessings that would come if one is obedient to the covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And verses uh, 15 through 68, do the math are talking about the cursings. Now, just given the law of proportion, what would you think the odds are that Israel's going to obey? Not great. It's talking about what will happen, and indeed we see that that is precisely what has happened. Deuteronomy chapter 29. It's talking about, oh, that Israel would have a heart to do these things. But the fact is they don't. The problem was Israel's sin. The problem was Israel's heart. And there's something that's going to have to happen. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, God says, I will circumcise your hearts. And when you have new hearts, then you will turn to me and you will repent and I will bring about blessings. But it's not because of the Mosaic covenant. It's because God is going to do something through another covenant, the new covenant, by which he brings about those blessings. I love this text in in Joshua chapter 24. Uh, verses 14 through 28, but particularly verses 19 through 22. Here's Joshua, and he's speaking to this generation of Israelites, and he basically says, choose you this day whom you will serve. And, and it's sort of like a pep rally environment. You know how that goes, rah, 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 our team's going to win, you know, and all that stuff. And they're saying, we will obey the Lord. Yes, yes, we can do this. And, and, and Joshua says to him, no, you can't. It's not going to work. You can't do it. You can, you can promise to do it, but there's no way you're going to be able to fulfill this covenant. And they say, oh, yes, we can. Yes, we can. And what comes right after the book of Joshua? The book of Judges. <laughs> it's like saying, oh, no, you can't. They can't. They cannot keep the law. Because the problem is, A, with man's sinfulness... And B, with the law's inability to remove sin in a permanent way. That's why the need for the new covenant. 
key text for me is in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 26. First thing he says in verse 16 is, the fulfillment of the promise that God has made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant is in the person of Christ. Christ is the seed of Abraham through whom God's covenant promises to Abraham will be fulfilled. Then he says, the law came about after the Abrahamic covenant and it can't change what was made. Now remember, the the Abrahamic covenant was made with an oath, right? We already saw that in Hebrews. It was made with an oath, which means it's unchangeable. And therefore, anything that happens after that, such as the Mosaic Covenant, it does not modify or nullify the covenant that's made before it. I'm going to use a bad illustration, and ideally it would be a good one. But that is, when you look at the Constitution of the United States, that, so to speak, was something, a covenant that was agreed to that should have been with an oath that was unchangeable, And every time a law or an action takes place which is inconsistent with that, it must change. The the task of the Supreme Court is to measure legislation and activity on the basis of this set, sealed, delivered covenant and to say, I'm sorry, but it doesn't comply. So it isn't the Constitution that changes. It's the law that has to go. I say, I wish that were true, (laughs) because unfortunately it seems like it's going in reverse, but at least the idea is there, and that's what the author is saying. So the Mosaic Covenant came after the Abrahamic Covenant, but the Abrahamic Covenant came first, it came with an oath, and the Mosaic Covenant cannot modify or change what God promised to Abraham. The inheritance is based upon a promise and not law, he says in, in Galatians 3, verse 18. The blessings that are, that are to come are blessings that are a result of the promise. The Abrahamic covenant is a promise. The Mosaic law is a set of commands and conditions. So the, it's the Abrahamic covenant that will bring about the blessings, not the Mosaic law. Well, then what is the role of the law? He says it, it's a temporary measure. I've likened it in the past to a, now I would have said General Motors spare tire, but now a bunch of other folks do it. But you know that little rinky-dink spare tire in your trunk that just looks like a toy? Well, when they put that in there, folks, it was an emergency device. And it'll get you to the gas station, it'll get you to the tire repair shop, but don't drive from here to Washington State on it. That's not what it's for. It's just to get you to the next place where, it can, where, where something could be done about it. So he says, it's a temporary measure, it was a tutor, it is to help bring us to Christ, but it does so by showing us our sin and the fact that we need something besides law-keeping and a set of rules to get us there. So it helps us along the way, but it is a temporary measure. Therefore, he says, when we have come to Christ, in chapter 3, verse 25, we no longer need what is temporary. We no longer need the tutor. We are now operating under this covenant that God has given to us. So these three covenants are key, I think. Abrahamic, Mosaic, and the New Covenant. And the direct link is between the Abrahamic and the New. And the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, was temporary, and as we know from our text, it was flawed. It couldn't do 
what it needed to do, what needs to be done, and that is to draw men near to God. And the reason is it, it couldn't deal permanently with sin. It couldn't rid men of sin. So let's trace the argument quickly of, of Hebrews chapter 8, which is about the supremacy of Christ's priesthood. First point is, Christ is a superior priest because of his place of ministry. Now, there are other things that have come before in chapter 7. But here he's saying, the Old Testament priests, they, pre, they, they did their work in an earthly sanctuary. That sanctuary was a prototype of, of things to come. But these were earthly men, men who died and so on. And, and Christ is our priest who has ascended up into the heavens. He is at the right hand of the Father. So he is the one from his place of ministry, if you would, from his office in heaven. He can do powerful things because of who he is and because of where he is. Secondly, in the last, uh, in verses 6 through 12, he is the mediator of a better covenant. A better covenant based upon superior promises that are promises sworn by an oath that we know will be realized in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in order to make that point, he's going to go to Jeremiah chapter 31 and quote verses 31 through 34. And then based upon that, the introduction to it in verse 7 and the conclusion in verse 13, he's going to say, that which is inferior, that which had problems, that which couldn't solve men's problem of sin, the Mosaic Covenant, it was inferior and inadequate. It has now been replaced by that which is superior, and that is the new covenant that has been brought to pass through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if it's obsolete, if it in a sense has been set aside, then obviously that's not where they ought to be going and following uh, the dictates and putting themselves back under the law. Now let's just say a word quickly about the backdrop of Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah is one of the saddest books and in one of the saddest circumstances in all of Israel's history. Remember, Jeremiah is alive at the time that, that Judah is going to be carried off into Babylonian captivity. He is not popular. He's thrown in a pit, all of those kinds of things, because it's now too late for Judah. They are rejecting the word of God. The northern kingdom of Israel has already been carried off into captivity. They've been dispersed abroad. And already in chapter 29 and verse 20, uh, which precedes our text in chapter 31, already some have been carried off into Judah. These are very dark days. And the days that lie ahead are even darker. It looks very bleak. I was thinking about our circumstances today and... You know, if you looked at the stock market reports and all those kinds of things, it's kind of, it's kind of a dim picture. It was a lot dimmer, a lot dimmer for the people who were in Judah at this point in time. So it's their darkest hour. And in a way, the Babylonian captivity is a picture of even a greater measure of judgment that God is going to bring upon Israel, and that is the great tribulation. He is going to bring about that tribulation and it will be as a result of Israel being in their darkest hour that God then is going to bring them out of captivity. He's going to bring them to salvation and deliverance and blessing and joy. And so the, the covenant, the new covenant that is given here is given to a people who are heading into the darkest days of their life. But the co promise is God is going to restore 
And he is going to restore, not on the basis of that flawed covenant, because that's what got them where they are, so to speak. Their sin and that covenant got them to where they are. It is now on the basis of a new covenant that God is going to do his work and produce his blessings in the life of his people. So let's talk about the the better promises of the new covenant. First of all, God provides a remedy for sin. In chapter uh, 8 of Hebrews and verse, uh, what do I say, 34? That doesn't sound right at all. How did I do that? Uh, it, it Basically, he says, I will, verse 12, I will be merciful to their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. The promise of the new covenant was God is going to deal with the problem of sin. Now, I confess to you that I've reversed the order in which they're found here because it seems to me that the basis of all the blessings that come is that sin has somehow been dealt with. And so, chronologically speaking, the way in which you solve it is you've got to make a provision for man's sin. And that is done through the new covenant and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, under the old covenant, God established barriers to separate. But the new covenant removes barriers and it reconciles. See, the problem in the Old Testament was you have a holy God and you have sinful men. How in the world do you deal with that? It's like a a mean junkyard dog. The only way you can deal with it is to put a chain on it and, and to put up a great big fence uh, that, that keeps people away from that. Of course, if they climb over the fence to steal the junkyard stuff, then they meet the dog. But there are barriers. And that's why at the base of Mount Sinai, God, in a sense, had yellow tape strung around. And he kept sending Moses back down and saying, don't let people get too close. The, the tabernacle was a way in which the Holy of Holies was set apart, it was veiled off, and only one person once a year was enabled to go into the presence of God because sinners cannot get close to God. And and uh, so this, in the Old Covenant, all it can do is set up barricades to keep men away for their safety. It can't draw men near, which is what the writer of the Hebrews means when he says, can't perfect It can't draw men near and intimately uh, with God. The new covenant does exactly the opposite. It removes the barriers. That's why the veil was rent in two and men now have access into the holy place, into the holiest place. Because our Lord has atoned for sin and men are now righteous in the person of Jesus Christ. They have access through their great high priest. Not only does it reconcile sinful men to God, it reconciles sinners to each other. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, you have not only the description of God through his grace reconciling men to himself, but he says the middle wall of partition, the partition between Gentiles and Jews, that has been removed. Now he's created one new man, the church, and, and now there is this unity and harmony and reconciliation that takes place because of the new covenant. See, men can have, they can draw near to God and have an intimate relationship with him because of the new covenant. It produces the opportunity, as it were, it perfects because men are now able 
that their sin has been dealt with, to draw near and have intimate fellowship with God. Men are transformed from within rather than conformed from without. In the Old Testament, you could deal with external things, but it was clear in the Old Testament that the problem was men's hearts. That's why it says God is going to have to circumcise men's hearts in order to produce the the results of the new covenant. So uh, men are transformed now from the inside. Remember in in Mark chapter 7, our Lord is saying when he's dealing with uh, declaring all things clean, it isn't who you eat with and it isn't what you eat that defiles ultimately. The the law was given in a way that sort of set you apart uh, from other people. But in reality, the defilement came from within. It's out of the heart that wickedness proceeds. And so it's from the heart that God must deal with men. And now having changed men inside, then the outside, of course, should follow in terms of the things that we do. But now we have the desire and the ability through his spirit to do those things. This is probably the most troubling one to me. God gives a superior knowledge of himself to all, and he thereby removes any hierarchy. How does God uh, do that? How does God remove this hierarchy? It says you will no longer teach uh, one another, but everyone will, will have a knowledge of God. Here's the, way, here's the best way I understand that at this moment in time. When you look at the Old Testament... If you want to put it in those terms, the Old Testament created a kind of caste system. A kind of caste system in the sense that only certain people could do certain things. Would that not be right? Certain people were responsible to break down the tabernacle. Certain people could 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 carry out priestly duties. But it was very closely uh, defined, and you had these these close role definitions. So that there were the priests and others who had this teacher role. In New Testament times, I believe we have a foretaste of the ultimate reality. And that is, there is a breakdown. And and remember, even in the Old Testament, he said to Israel, you will be a kingdom of priests. So somehow, everyone now was to have a kind of priestly function, whereas under the Old Covenant, that was very restricted as to who could do what. And so, when you think about the New Testament... And you think about what, how things used to be in the Old Testament and how you had leadership, prophets, uh, priests, and kings, and closely defined roles. And now all of a sudden in the New Testament church, you may have a, a very rich uh, farmer who has the gift of helps. And you may have a slave who has the gift of teaching. Or you may have a, a slave who is an elder in the church. So that all of those cast, so to speak, that were fixed under the law, now have been set aside. And and you see that there is, as we see, for instance, in in our Lord's Supper meeting, that every man has an opportunity to to, to stand and lead and guide and and praise and and whatever. And and so the the caste system of a a select few has, has already being broken down. I believe in heaven what we will see is that it's even going to be obliterated altogether. There won't be the, the Bible scholars, you know, that, that will be off in one part of heaven and teaching the, the neophytes. The reality is everybody's going to sit there and say, I know that. 
Because they're, they're, they're now with him. He's made himself known to them and they know him fully. Who's going to teach in heaven? What men is going to teach in heaven are going to teach? They won't. Our Lord, I suspect, will be answering a lot of questions. But we all will know him in a way that does not discriminate into categories as I see that we even have to some degree today. God achieves the promises of the new covenant by means of the shed blood of our Lord Jesus. That's what's really clear to me when you come to Luke chapter 22. This is the new covenant which is in my blood. What is Jesus saying? He's saying the new covenant, we all understand what that is. We should from the Old Testament. The new covenant, and it is being realized, it is being executed on the basis of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is Jesus Christ who brings about uh, the fulfillment of that new covenant for believers. Now let's talk about some, some uh, applications of that. One, A, I guess I should say, new, a new covenant assumes man's sinfulness and the law's inability to save. Is that not true? One, the premise behind the new covenant is that the old covenant doesn't work. Men can't abide by any system of rules. And, and I want to expand that. It isn't just that man cannot win favor with God and draw near to God by the keeping of the Old Testament law. Any other religious system, and virtually all other religious systems, have some set of do's and don'ts. No set of do's and don'ts, no system set up by man that is dependent upon men and their performance will ever get men near to God. The assumption behind the new covenant is the old one is broken. Broken in the sense that it just won't work. And it's broken because we're broken. If we were perfect, you could, you could have given in the Garden of Eden, I suppose, you could have given the law to Adam and Eve before the fall, and as long as they remain unfallen, then it probably would have been an issue. But we're fallen men and women, and therefore... We need help, and the new covenant is that help. Secondly, the new covenant reveals the heart of God. I don't know what to say exactly about this. There, is, there was, I was listening to a sermon this morning on, on the way to church, and, and it was on Romans chapter 1, and, and you know that the protesters are outside the church, and they're hollering and fussing and whatever. And I agree I agree with that interpretation of Romans chapter 1. I, I guess what I'm saying is, what picture do I want sinners to have? What picture does God want sinners to have? Our problem is, I think, when we think, or at least when most people think of the Old Testament, they think of one word, condemnation. Now, that's not a bad word to think of. <laughs> Because it's clear in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, that through the law, no flesh will be justified. It's clear from Paul's teaching that the law was given not to provide us a system whereby we could work our way to God's favor, but by which he could demonstrate our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. But my point is this. What picture do we want men to have of God? And, and as I see it, the new covenant is, the, is a revelation of the heart of God. He is a God who is filled with mercy and compassion and he delights to save. Does he hate sin? Yes. 
That he delights to save sinners. And he delights to save unworthy sinners. So the picture that we ought to portray and, and, and the mood that we ought to have as we come and observe the Lord's Supper is one of joy and gratitude for grace because the new covenant reveals to us what God is like. That, I think, is why he says, in part, that they will all know God. We will know him through the grace that he has manifested in fulfilling the new covenant. The new covenant is the gospel, and it is truly good news. You know, there are, and I've used it uh, many times, or I've used it in the past, what would be called the Roman road, uh, you know, where you go through Romans and you show man's sin and, and man's inability and the provision of Jesus Christ in late chapter 3 and, and all of those things. And you can do it. It's a great place. But did you ever think about the new covenant as being the pattern for your gospel? I mean, what better pattern for the gospel do you have than the new covenant as it's taught? You start with man's inability. That's verse 7 and verse 13 of our text. Verse 7 says, you know, if it weren't broke, God wouldn't have to replace it. So something is wrong with a works-based system, even a good works-based system. Something is wrong with it, and the problem is man's sin. That's where the gospel starts. Man's desperate need for grace from God that is not dependent upon his works. God's forgiveness of sins that comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. What we could not do to rid ourselves of sin, God has done by pouring out his wrath on his son and bearing the penalty for our sin. God creates in us a new heart. He places his spirit within us that makes us yearn for him as his father. He does that so that now we delight to do his will and to be obedient to him. And he produces an intimate fellowship. Whereas the law created barriers and boundaries and says, keep your distance, buster, grace says, draw near. That's, that's the message of Hebrews. Draw near to him because the new covenant does that. So all I'm saying is think about the new covenant in those terms. That could be the pattern for the gospel you proclaim. It's all people need to know in order to be saved. Although certainly there are other things that would be good to know as well. So for those in the, in the original readers of the book of Hebrews, why in the world would you go back? Why go to the garbage heap? You know, the, 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 down the alleys and pick through the garbage bags. I must confess, I, I'm guilty of that sometimes. But theologically speaking, stay out of the dump. Stay out of the dump. The stuff that's been thrown away is not what you need. It's just an evidence that you need something better. He's got a better gift for us. The new covenant has greater glory and the power to transform lives. I'm thinking about Second Corinthians now where Paul is talking about all the difficulty, all the adversity, all the hardships of preaching the gospel. And what he says is, the glory of God that was shown on the face of Moses, it was a glory that faded. He put over his face a veil, not to keep people from seeing the glory, but to, from seeing the glory go away. And he says, we have on our faces the unfading glory of God. We have the power of the Spirit, not the power of the letter of the law. And I'm saying, isn't that the basis for our evangelism? 
Isn't that really the key to how we will evangelize others? Is the new covenant. It is God convicting men of sin. John uh, chapter 16. He will con- he will con- convict the, sin- the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He must convict men of their need for him. He must quicken the hearts of men and give them life. And so our task is not to twist and push and shove. It is to proclaim and practice the truth and look to God to change men's hearts. That's what the new covenant does. And we ought to, therefore evangelize in that light. The celebration of the Lord's table each week is the celebration of the new covenant. Is that not right? That's what our Lord says in Luke chapter 22 and verse 20. Every time we come and we gather and we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating the new covenant. The new covenant that's in his blood. I was thinking about that this morning. If you look at this table, and it has some flaws in the sense that it wasn't exactly like the table that, w- that you would find when our Lord was eating the meal with his disciples. But, but the two elements, the bread and the wine, you would have to say God brought the meal, right? There was nothing that we could bring to the table, so to speak. Nothing we could bring to the table that God would say, oh, this, oh, this looks really good. It doesn't. Our need, we come to him in our need. He is the one who in the bread has come in human flesh and without sin. He is the one who can shed his blood for us. And in that sense, I wish the offering plate weren't there because it has nothing to do with the fulfilling of the new covenant in the sense of being independent of our works. But every week we do that. Now, think about this. I don't know why, but Judaism seemed to confuse circumcision and the Mosaic Covenant. And that's why they wanted people to be circumcised, is because that was, a, that was an agreement that we're going to be under the law. And that's why Paul's so strong about it. Circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic Covenant. What is the sign of the New Covenant? The Sabbath. That's why it was so serious in the, in the Old Testament days to break... The Sabbath was because that was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. It was like shaking your fist in God's face. What is the sign of the New Covenant? The sign of the New Covenant, I believe, is the Lord's Supper. Now, if the signs of circumcision and the signs of Sabbath were so important in the Old Testament, how is it that we can say to ourselves, well, in the New Testament, they observe the Lord's Supper daily and weekly, but we think we'll do it monthly, quarterly, annually. Why is it we're so casual about that? I mean, isn't there a sense in which we ought to delight and desire to celebrate that covenant by which all of these blessings have come to us? Seems to me it ought to be. One last thing I thought about. The new covenant is really the rest. Remember in in chapter 3 and chapter 4 where it talked about Israel not entering into the rest? I, I was thinking in those terms and saying... When you read the New Covenant, when you see what God says, isn't that what it's about? Somebody got close to Matthew 11 where he says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from all the works. Rest from all the stress. Rest from all the human effort to do something to win God's favor. The New Covenant is our rest. That is, Jesus Christ is our rest. And we have that by trusting him. If you are here this morning and you have never trusted in Jesus, it's all about the new covenant and the new covenant is all about Jesus. 
The new covenant says you can't get to God by your works. It's just not going to happen. And, and, and the reason why I think God took so long in the Old Testament is he gave man every shot at it he could. And it always failed. Men always ended up in trouble because he'll never work his way to God. But all through the Old Testament, there is the hope that there is a new covenant that is coming that will fulfill the promises that came all the way back in Genesis 12 that God would bring blessing through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what has happened. And all you need to do is acknowledge that you're a sinner, you're in desperate need of help, and that God has provided that help in the person of his Son, in the shedding of his blood. And by trusting in him, he will give you a new heart, a new life, a reconciliation not only with him, but with other men who are believers in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the new covenant. Father, we give thanks for this covenant and for the one who made it all come to pass, our Lord Jesus. Help us to acknowledge, to say amen to the fact that we are sinners and incapable of pleasing you. Help us to see that it is you, through the person of the Lord Jesus, who has remedied the problem of our sin, that creates new hearts within us, that draws us into intimate fellowship with you. I pray that everyone here may be trusting in him and may be rejoicing in this covenant. In Jesus' name, amen.